Okie dokie. Oh. A podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels Part 75. Man, we are three quarters of a way to Gospels 100. Can you believe that, Paul? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll count anything makes it feel like we're making progress. <laughs> I know, right? Um, but last week we saw where Jesus continued to use imageries from the festival of Sukkot with that the tent next to where the women would gather, where the, you had those big chandeliers of light, and him saying that he is the light of the world that brings true revelation and wisdom to mankind, and whoever follows him won't walk in darkness. And yeah. just amazing imagery that he's using right there in the present time. And Pharisees are saying, but you're bringing witness just about yourself. And Jesus responds like, that's what the prophets did. That's what Moses did. Like, I'm simply doing the same thing. Like, but this is the fulfillment of it all. Um, and it's amazing just to see their opposition. But then at the end, as we move down in chapter 8 of John, Jesus says, like, even though you're rebelling against me now, like, whenever you see me being lifted up, like, then you're going to believe, which is just an amazing picture. Yeah. And again, that's, we don't have any evidence that any of that happened, but you know, it's just, that's just what the text said. So we're just kind of going with it. Right. But they've been in the, in this long argument. And I say long also because I know what's coming. They're not done yet. This is going to keep going on. So Samuel, you ready to go? Yep. I'm strapped in, buckled in. All right, let's do it. John chapter 8, verses 39 to 42. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. So, you know, in the world of quick comebacks, Samuel, this is a doozy. I mean, they they just kind of repeat themselves. Abraham is our father. (laughs) No, Abraham is our father. Exactly. Yeah, they just keep. And, you know, we can poke fun, but, you know, just you try to picture them, their lives, whatever. They're probably holding on to this as just this undeniable, unchangeable truth. And thank goodness nobody in and around the church today ever does anything like that anymore. <laughs> I was hoping you'd laugh because that was oh, totally yeah. a joke. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but, you know, 
we shouldn't make too much fun of him because that's so anyway jesus clarifies he says look if you really were sons of abraham well then you would be like him that makes sense right samuel definitely yeah you would do what he did it makes total sense well abraham was a big fan of you know justice and hospitality and he really listened to the things that God said, and he trusted in them, even when they were just the craziest things. He wasn't perfect, but he did it. But these guys, they're not like that. In fact, Jesus brings it up again. They want to kill him, and all he has ever done is speak the truth. And that's nothing like Abraham. It's just not what Abraham did. They're not doing the works of Abraham. And then Jesus says it again, you're doing the works of your father. But again, he leaves him unnamed. Now, in a way, kind of reminds me, I don't know if you thought of this or not, Samuel, kind of reminds me of John the Baptist back in uh, earlier in Matthew. It's chapter three, verse nine. Why don't you read that for us? And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And the important takeaway, the important point is that they are depending on their lineage, their physical descent. And that is the big mistake that the Jews are making all through the New Testament. It's not that there isn't something special about being Israel, but but you need to be faithful and loyal trusting and obedient and all of those things. And they they were obedient, at least to the letter of the law, but they, they just had things all screwed up. And God's looking for real sons, if you will. But anyway, they respond. Um, and, you know, their lingo is a little weird, but it's it's kind of like they're saying, hey, it's not as if we don't know our own lineage. We It's not like we're born of adultery or promiscuity. They know who their fathers are, and that would go all the way back to Abraham. It's it's like they're saying, we're not idolaters, because that's everybody outside of Israel, right? But Abraham was their father. And to top that, they were saying, look, we really only have one father anyway, and that's God himself. And you have to, I mean, just being fair, that probably felt like a pretty good comeback in the moment. It, it seems seems pretty good. But it's also possible, and this is, again, it's interesting, it's so hard to tell the way John tells the story. Maybe they remember that, you know, they had questioned Jesus's lineage. Was he really the son of David? And so they may be taking what Jesus is saying here as if Jesus is, you know, like poking right back, questioning their lineage as a, like a retaliation. And then, you know, if if that much is true, it may also be, and this is so hard because we just never can tell what do they know, what do they not know, whatever, what do they suspect, but it could be that somehow in here they're highlighting Jesus's questionable birth circumstances, right? Especially, obviously, the conception part, because they're saying we were not born of sexual immorality, and I don't know if that's here, but it could suggest that they were, you know thinking that Jesus was born of immorality. But I don't know, speculation. But anyway, continuing again, Jesus again tries to help them see the truth. 
if they really were sons of Abraham and sons of God, this is so simple. They would love Jesus. They would love everything about his life, his his mission, his message, everything he represents. He came from God. He was sent by God. Any true son of Abraham would recognize and be drawn to that. But they're not. Hmm. That's tough. Um, And I'm a little confused by their usage of the statement, well, we have one God, or we have one Father, even God. Um, And Paul, correct me if I'm misinterpreting the context within their culture, but wasn't Jesus's usage in previous parts of his ministry within the Gospels where he refers to God as Father, that that would have been kind of a challenging aspect for either Jewish common folk or the leadership to grapple with because of their their current um, reverence for who God was, that they didn't even want to use his name. They would either say, like, Lord, you know, in Hebrew or Aramaic, it would have been Adonai, Master, but that the, the personal aspect that intimate that Jesus was kind of showcasing wasn't as present as it should have been based on their strict following of the letter of the law, or am I adding in details here? Well, if I'm connecting with you and remembering what you're remembering, that kind of thing, I think it it is slightly different than that. When When this came up and there actually was controversy between Jesus and some of the others, what it really boiled down to is that something about the things he was saying, they felt that he was equating himself with the Father. And we've spent a lot of time showing that he wasn't doing that, and he spent a lot of time actually saying, showing how he wasn't doing that himself. But uh, I'm going to say, Jesus talking about Father and referring to them to him as his Father, and even sometimes saying our Father, stuff like that, it wasn't as common as many of the other names. However, Jesus wasn't the first to do it, and he wasn't the only to do it. In fact, it even shows up in some of their prayers throughout the annual cycle, some of the different festivals, whatever. So it it was rare, but it was not unheard of, and it wasn't considered to be disrespectful or anything like that. It It just wasn't as common. Sweet. That helps. Well, if I'm you know, talking about the same thing. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think it was I think it was cool. I think it was cool. Sweet. So uh going on, chapter eight, verses forty-three to forty-seven says this. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. 
The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Man, if they didn't have a bloody nose before that, I mean, that's just like (laughs) smack. But listen to what Jesus is saying. He's like, look, do you know why you're not understanding me? It's because you refuse. You refuse to hear me. You you can't bear it. And and why? Why won't you hear me? Why won't you bear it? Why can't you bear it? It's because you are of your father. And instead of leaving him unnamed, he goes ahead and does it right there in front of God and everybody. Your father, the devil. And I mean, come on, that's pretty rough. He's laying it on him. How does Jesus know that they are of the devil? Got a guess, guess, Samuel? Uh, I mean, I'm just thinking about their equation with the serpent and doing things that are contrary to what God lays out in his Torah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. Instead of doing God's will, they want to do the will of the devil, Jesus says. And and this is often manifest as, or or I guess maybe you could say in some ways it's equal to, and it's exactly what you were talking about, Samuel, doing your own will. It's that story from the garden. The snake convinced Eve to do what she wanted instead of obeying God. He tempted, but this is the important part. She went with it. They went with it, right? And we've got to remember that. The devil, he's not making you do stuff. You're giving in to temptation, and that it's just a big deal. But Jesus paints a clear picture of just exactly who the devil is. And it's not like, you know, the exhaustive description, but it's big, important stuff. He is a murderer. He hates the truth. He lies. In fact, it's his very essence and nature. He is a lying liar who lies, right? And remember, remember, this is in the context of Jesus telling them who their real father is. Ouch. But Jesus continues, and it's a, you're going to see it's the same, kind of the same stuff repeating itself. Since I'm speaking the truth, you don't believe me because you are of your father. And he challenges them. Can you prove even one sin? I have committed anything that disqualifies me as a prophet or, you know, more importantly, the Messiah. And then, you know, he throws the rhetorical question, if I'm speaking the truth, why don't you believe me? And then he answers it for himself. Those who are of God hear his words. You ain't hearing them because you are not of God. Mic drop. Jesus out. (laughs) That's right. And that's intense, right? He was laying Mm -hmm. it on him. Mm Mm-hmm. And his his words are stirring things up in me that I'm struggling with. So can we take just a minute to address a couple things that you said? Uh, First thing, you said that Uh, Instead of doing God's will, they want to do the will of the devil, which is often manifest in some ways equal to doing your own will. Now, I'm not wanting to 
assume what people are thinking, but I know that what my previous tendency has been when I hear a statement like that to somehow equate my uh, inherent essence of like anything that is separate from being connected with God as being devilish or corrupt or inherently bad. And I, I'm, I'm saying that you are not saying that because right. I believe that the story from the beginning in creation, God says that we have been, that the story is built on foundational goodness that then was broken and now he's fixing it like to completion rather than creating a world and creating people that were foundationally broken. So I just wanted to give you a quick space to address that, to assure people that we are not advocating that things within ourselves are are somehow, I don't know, evil, like whenever. Yeah, I, no, I'm glad you brought that up because it's really good. And, and it's what I was trying to communicate when I talked about going back to the garden and the snake and Eve and all of that. When 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 I talk about the idea that that in some ways it just does, ends up being our own will, you know, we say that you know they want to do the will of the devil, and and that feels like oh it's an external thing that you know whatever. But understand, we are the ones that eventually agree with it. It wasn't that the snake made Eve eat the fruit. He offered it, and she's the one who said, yeah, I want that. And so at that point, you, you can see from the outside, you can go, yeah, well, in the end, Eve ended up exercising her own will, right? The devil, in that case, the snake, uh, is, is providing the temptation, but we're going along with it. So yeah, I'm not saying that the evil necessarily originates in us. It's just that we are so willing often to go along with it. And what is the Jewish thing they do, Samuel? It's like there's the the good in- inclination and the evil inclination. Mm-hmm. And w- what's important to us is the idea that, yeah, you've got both. You're not just all bad. The point, the, the goal is learning to, to w- live out of that good inclination. And when you're not, you're agreeing with the devil. In some sense, you're doing his will, but in another sense, you're doing your own will. So it's all that, that's, that was the thing I was trying to equate. So yeah. Yeah. No, that helps. And another thing that helps me think about it better, um, in, in the same way, same manner, but just slightly different wording, if we take like the good inclination and evil inclination and replace the negative aspect of that with, how do I want to word it? Like, bestial cravings and what i mean by that is like what separates humanity from the rest of the animalistic part of the created world is that we have the capability to say no to our desires like we have in some essence we know when to say enough and so when we give into that whenever we act like a beast like whatever we desire whatever our emotions are sparking within us and then we immediately act on that 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 is like reverting back to more like an animal quality than it is like the human quality that god placed in us to rise above that aspect yeah (laughs) it reminds me tim Mackey from the bible project he refers to it as well 
you were human, and then then when you choose your will above his, and you go with the beastly desire type thing, you become subhuman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just think that's great. That's good. It's good. Yeah, it's good. Good word. Now, it's the second thing really quickly is Jesus' uh-huh. words about the devil saying that, um, let's see, verse 44, he was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. So I thought that I've read stuff in the past, especially in Jewish literature, that there's this weird aspect about the enemy, the Satan, the serpent, where... He's like speaking half-truths, like whenever we go back to Genesis 1 and he says, like, if you eat of the fruit, you won't die. And, like, in some ways, like, it didn't literally cause their death immediately after eating it. Right. Like, it it was a different type of death. And then, um, I mean, and then some ways that he said, like, you'll be like God. And, like, in they were in being able to see the difference between good and evil and everything. And then later in the story, whenever Jesus is being tempted by the devil, the devil is using scripture. Like, I mean, I know he's doing it as a bait and switch way to get Jesus to succumb to it, but he's using foundations to get Jesus to act on those truths within scripture Mm -hmm. in, in an unhealthy way. So how do we discern about what Jesus is saying here in in these other examples where the enemy is like using truth, but in a a twisted backwards way. Yeah. I I actually think that you are answering your own question. When we say that he has, that there is no truth in him. Okay. Do we need to make the inference or the assumption? Is it necessary to follow on and say, it is therefore impossible for him to ever say anything that's true. Well, no, you don't have to. Well, then what's he doing? And as you said, he is only using the truth or half-truths or however you it turns out in the moment. He's only using it for his purposes. And his purposes, his motivation, his plan, his goal, all of those things, okay, those are bereft of truth. He's never seeking truth in anything that he does. So what you have is a creature, there is no truth in him, but he is not a creature that is incapable of letting something true fall out of his mouth when it serves his purposes, which basically serve untruth, right? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I think so. Again, you yeah. already, I mean, you, you were saying it the whole time you were asking it, so. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think I'm getting there. I'm just, I'm, I'm continuing to wrestle with it, so. Yeah. All right. Well, as soon as you pin both of his shoulders, I'll, I'll call it. <laughs> so if you, if you hear a whistle... While we're doing the podcast, it's because Samuel's finally wrestled that one down. Fighting in the white corner. (laughs) That's right. All right. Anything else? Nope. Okay. Uh, John chapter 8, verses 48 to 53. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, 
do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Now, here's one of those things. It's kind of funny. It fits into your question a little bit. They're actually saying some things that kind of make sense. And we need, we need to try to figure out what's going on. Now, if you guys are getting tired of this argument, remember, we're in verse, we've made it to verse 53. It started all the way back in verse 12. Just hang in there. There isn't that much longer to go. We're going to do it. But his opponents are frustrated and bothered. See, they think that what Jesus has been saying is, in some sense, validating even the worst things that they have said about him. Weren't we right to call him a Samaritan? Weren't we right to say he has a demon? Now, I don't know if you've noticed this as we've been going through. Probably not, because it gets broken up across podcasts. But if you read this thing through, what you'll start to notice is there's a little, little ping pong game going on. Jesus, just these are just examples, Jesus questions their legitimacy through Abraham. So then they question his legitimacy through David. And then Jesus says that they act on the influence from the devil. And then they say that he acts on the influence of a demon. So there's little this little tit for tat thing going on and they're they're just going back and forth. I'm not I don't think they're done yet, but anyway, that's going on. But Jesus, Jesus corrects them. <laughs> that seems pretty easy. I do not have a demon. So there you go. But even more than that, he wants them to understand that his every word and his every action honor God. So here he is. He is honoring God in every way. And then they, this, this had to be so convicting at the moment he said it. He says, you dishonor me. But at the same time, if you've been listening, it's pretty much the same argument over and over. Jesus adds, you know what? I'm not seeking my own glory. He said that before. God is. God is the one who's seeking glory for Jesus, his Messiah. And God is the one in the end who can be the judge, who will be the judge between them. In fact, God, you know, he's kind of like, in the end of all everything, he is the judge. But Jesus just goes back to his main point. He's basically saying, look, you gotta keep my word. You have to abide in me. You have to continue in my teaching. It's what Jesus is saying. And, and here's why. Anyone who does these things will not only be a disciple. Okay, that's the easy one. You will be a true disciple. That's a big deal. But Jesus, Jesus adds this bit about, you will never see death. Now, Samuel, 
here we are. When we're sitting here recording this, it's 2022. Is there something about that statement that kind of doesn't ring true? I mean, everybody's going to die. <laughs> Everybody has. And everybody's gonna, right? I mean, we've got over 2,000 years of evidence that people are going to keep dying. Unless, maybe, there is no one who's ever kept his word, abided in him, or continued in his teaching. I don't know. And so, you got, at this moment, you at, at least at this moment, you have to kind of give his opponents a little bit of a break. Uh, because that was quite a statement. That's a little bit outside the box. And, you know, his opponents, I'm assuming John would call them the Jews, had heard enough. And they're, they're like, oh, well, now we know you're crazy or, you know, that you have a demon. No one escapes death. And then here's their proof. Abraham died. The prophets died. And then we, sitting here 2,000 years later, in hindsight, could go, yeah, and everybody else died too. All the apostles, all the, every, everybody. But their thing is, who the heck do you think you are? Are you greater than all of them? And again, in hindsight, we would look back and go, why, yes. As a matter of fact, he is. But Jesus doesn't say that. So here's the thing. It, is, it, it shouldn't be that it's just these guys who are bothered by this. Because when you read it, and it's not like there's anything weird or crazy going on in the underlying text or anything, it just sounds like Jesus is saying that there are going to be people who will never die physically. Now, okay, we can jump ahead and think about the world to come and after resurrection and all of that makes sense, but but Jesus didn't say that. He didn't. So, this has to be hard for anyone to hear what exactly is going on. Because, I mean, at least in some sense, what they were saying was absolutely right. And could we just stop for a moment? Samuel, what happened to Jesus? He died. <laughs> he died, right? And so, so what exactly is it that Jesus means here? Okay, and, and we've talked about it. History, so far it's proven. We're not talking about physical death. And so... Well, I don't know. The text kind of reads that way, but what 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 could he be saying? Well, first of all, because we know more now, we can apply the ideas of the first death followed by the resurrection, followed by the second death and say, "You know what? There are those who will never taste of death, and I guess what I mean here is eternal death, because they will have attained eternal life. Now, all by itself, that probably didn't sound all that satisfying, but if we dig in just a little bit more detail, what are we saying? You could say that a person, let's let's say that they're a true disciple, that they go from life, that's like now with a body, you know, whatever thing we're used to, and then they would go to paradise where they would exist without a body, so this is their, you know, their, their eternal spirit. And then they would go to resurrection and all of a sudden they've got a body again. And in some sense, you could say that they were moving from life to life to life. That's, that's a way that we might look at it. Another one is that you might focus solely on a person's spirit. 
And and we talk about that. We say, look, you have a body, you have a soul, that's your nefesh, and then you have a, a spirit, an eternal spirit, that's your neshama. Okay, so we'd be talking about the neshama. And we're just ignoring the flesh altogether. And so if you're doing that, then in some sense you could say that that spirit, uh, it's like it, uh, I'm not sure what to say, benefits from or somehow joins into that salvation or born-again experience kind of a thing, and it never experiences death. As opposed to, let's just say somebody ends up in the book of death after the judgment, and they're in the book of death, even their very spirit experiences death in the end, eternal death. And so, you know, the ideas are, they're, they're similar, I guess, and they may be right. Maybe, maybe there's something more, better, I don't know. This one leaves a lot of room for further thought, but we know he's not talking about physical death because everybody's been dying. And so we have to try to figure what he was aiming at, and those are a couple of my best guesses. Yeah, this is a tough one to chew on. And I'm, I, I mean, there's no way that we can answer this question. It's purely hypothetical, but I just, I'm struggling with why Jesus would bypass the interpretation from the physical death to referencing things spiritual and eternal whenever we see their response and like how much they're struggling with his words. I mean, I know that rabbinically that there's something going on here to challenge, provoke, to get them to think, but if it caused so much confusion, why wouldn't he just say like, truly I say to you, whoever keeps my word will never see eternal death. Like, I feel like that would have cleared the air so much. Right, right. Yeah, I have no idea, Samuel. And, you know, sometimes I wonder, he's he's been arguing with these guys for a long time. And I don't know if it's John and the way he's telling the story, or if it's, you know, like really authentic, uh, faithful to Jesus's lingo, and that this is what Jesus was doing. Either way, I I, I often wonder, does Jesus get a little perturbed or impatient or something with them? And he throws out these spiritual bombs knowing they're not going to have any idea what I'm talking about, but it's going to stir them up. It's going to do, or maybe it'll end the conversation or something. I, I don't, I don't know that that's true, but sometimes it looks like he does things like that. Just, you know, you're not listening to me anyway. So here, let me throw this on you. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have any better answer on that one, Samuel. It seems th- this is just a toughie. And, you know, I would love to hear somebody who had a, some better explanation for that. I just don't know that anybody could know. What, what exactly did he mean right there? Because mm-hmm. that's weird. Yeah. I like what you said there at the end, though, because, I mean, we have to give Jesus room to respond in manners like that from time to time because— we see God himself do that with Israel in the Old Testament. I mean, God experienced frustration and, like, yeah. uh, I mean, in some manner without it, you know, being sin, like, patience being tested, yet still he operated within a righteous manner. Like, Jesus has that capability, too, like, with the people he's interacting with. So, I, I like that. Yeah, it's a lot harder for us, I think, but... You know, just to 
just from a, a trying to be objective, we can look at the scriptures and go, look, anger in and of itself is not sin. Because God got angry. We, it looks like Jesus gets angry occasionally, you know, stuff like that. But, and, and this is a phrase that many people use, like, oh, but it has to be a righteous anger. And, you know, I don't really know what that means, like, in detail, but I totally get the idea. I get the concept, and I agree with it. There's something, something to it. There is a way to be perturbed, angry, wrathful, impatient, something, and it's okay, because God does it. And so, I, yeah, I, I hear you, Samuel. I, I don't know. Just as humans, it's usually better for us to just kind of go, yeah, we should try to avoid anger. <laughs> we really should. Because, you know, it just leads to murder. That's the whole yeah. Sermon on it's, the Mount thing. So It's like cyanide for our <laughs> emotional well-being. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's not good for us. Generally speaking, if you, if somehow you are one of those humans that can handle it, good for you. All right. Uh, Oh, you know, we should try and go on. In fact, Samuel, I believe we are coming to the end of the argument, so this could be really good. So here we go. John chapter 8, verses 54 through 59. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Oh, Samuel, this is one of the most incredible verses in all of the scriptures. <laughs> Verse 58, buddy, that's awesome. But, okay, let's try not to jump ahead. Let's see if we can walk through what we've got here. Again, we're toward the end of the argument, and so you get a sense even from Jesus that he's trying to wrap this thing up. He says, hey, if I was the one who was trying to bring glory to myself, well, that would just be a big fat nothing burger. Period. End of story. But that's not the case. It's my father who's doing it. The one that you claim is your God. And then he tells them that they can't see it because they don't really know him, him being God himself. And Jesus says, but I do. Jesus knows him. In fact, (laughs) <laughs> this is so great. Jesus says, if if I said that I didn't know him, then I'd be a liar like you. <laughs> it's just so nice, good. Jesus. Yeah. But facts are facts. I do know him and I keep his word. Now, 
Again, it's like we asked before, Samuel, how is it that Jesus knows that they don't know him? Well, it's because they don't keep his word. Now, for clarity, they may keep the letter of the law. In fact, they were really, really good at it, and we shouldn't look at it as if that's not worth anything. But it's missing just the vital, vital part, the good stuff. They don't do justice. They don't love mercy. They don't walk humbly with God. And in this, we know that they're not really keeping his word. But anyway, Jesus makes one final attempt. He's trying to get through to these guys. And he starts talking about Abraham seeing something. He refers to it as my day. Now, whatever that is, we're told that it makes Abraham glad. Got any ideas what he's talking about, Samuel? I mean, I faintly remember a midrash about that, so. Oh, lay it on us. Uh, In the story where God tells Abraham to go sacrifice Isaac on the mountain, um, one of the, like, rewards that God gifts Abraham through his obedience is when they get to the top of the mountain in that whole process, Abraham is looking out towards the valley, like I guess in some ways geographically would be towards the part of the land that God promised his descendants would get, and God gave him a vision of seeing Jerusalem in the time of the kingdom with Messiah reigning, like that he he got a glimpse Ah. of like what the kingdom would look like in that land. Okay, so the Midrash talks about the kingdom, so that's a really good one. And and again, what we're trying to figure out is what did he mean when he said Abraham saw my day or, you know, wanted to see my day or whatever. So the kingdom, that's a good one. Uh, another one is, well, maybe it's, maybe it's judgment day because, you know, they're all going to stand before the throne. Jesus is going to be taking part in all of that. So that's kind of a big deal. Maybe he saw that. And the thing is, okay, so the one that you mentioned, it's in a midrash. Now, okay, we don't always specifically know the time that these things came into being, but it's very possible that that midrash about the kingdom was around before or during when Jesus was around. Uh, This idea about Abraham seeing the judgment day, well, that's a a Jewish tradition that was around in this time when Jesus was around, so so that's another possible. Another one is, well, maybe maybe he, he just saw, instead of saying like the kingdom or, you know, the judgment day or something, he just saw Jesus himself. He he actually got a glimpse at the Messiah. Well, in Jesus's day, there was an ongoing Jewish tradition about that also. So that's another possibility. We don't know exactly. I mean, it's not written anywhere. So his opponents, they seem to think that Jesus is referring to somehow Abraham and Jesus seeing each other. And, you know, I guess it kind of depends on your translation or the underlying manuscript, whatever. They could be asking one of two things. They could be saying, have you seen Abraham? Or they could be asking, has Abraham seen you? So remember when they said you're not yet 50 and have you seen Abraham? It could also be, has Abraham seen you? But but either way, right, whatever. If only, Samuel, 
And, and, you know, we talk about all this and you get to the end of it and it's like, yeah, but what, what does it really mean? If only there was something back in Abraham's story that might give us some sort of clue. Uh, as reference to Bama discipleship and Brent Billings, I believe it's in the text. <laughs> well, let's go take a peek. Why don't you read for us from Genesis 15, verse 1? After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Okay, who came to Abram? The word of the Lord. Oh, should I be saying what came to Abram or who? Hmm, you know what? How about read Genesis chapter 15, verse 4? And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Yeah, and who was it that came to him? The word of the Lord. Yeah. Now, I'm going to bet you that a lot of people are going back and they're reading this and they're going, no, Paul, don't be such a dope. All they're saying is, you know, though the, the sentence, fear not, Abraham, that's, you know, it, he heard that in his head. It was the word of the Lord. And this man shall not be your, it was just, you know, that voice in his head. I beg to differ. And I just want to point out, we are in John's gospel. And we know that he started out his gospel by making the point that this long tradition, long known idea of the word had now appeared in actual human flesh. If you want to hear us talk about it, boy, Samuel, this is a long time ago. I don't even know if it's any good. I can't remember. If they, but, <laughs> but it's back on John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. You can listen to our uh, podcast. It's titled, The Gospels Number One. So it was early on. But now think about that. We, we talked so much about how, but in Judaism, there was this idea that the word of the Lord was like, like this uh, essence of God, this uh, maybe like an agent of God, something that was him, but not the fullness of him because he can't fit in creation, all of those things. And here we see that the word of the Lord is visiting Abraham. From John's perspective, from Judaism's perspective, it wasn't just, you know, words echoing around inside Abraham's brain. Something actually came to him. It was in a vision. He saw it. So it's just important that we see it. But anyway, John introduced, we have Abraham. Uh, in the things that you read, Samuel, he's inter interacting with the word of the Lord. John, in his gospel, he's introducing Jesus as the word of the Lord. And Jesus is saying that Abraham saw his day. So, we don't know exactly when this was and what he was talking about. Maybe it was like in your Midrash or whatever, but we can see that, yeah, it looks like they did actually see each other because Abram saw the word of the Lord in a vision. At least this once in Genesis 15, maybe other times, right? We don't know. So whether Jesus' opponent, uh, whether his opponents like right here, right here on this day, actually see what he's talking about or not, don't know. But John, the writer of this gospel, definitely wants us, the reader, to see, again, Jesus as the same word that interacted with Abraham. 
It's the same. And that's a really, really big deal. So cool. But still, in this text, uh, this is only leading up to Jesus' big final statement. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, again, true Jesus fashion. Does he explicitly say, I am God or I am Messiah? Nope. <laughs> no, he doesn't. But the implication or inference, it's, it's unambiguous and undeniable. Samuel, read Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Yeah, I am, like like that's a name of some sort, right? I am has sent me to you. And then Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Ah, that's just, that is beyond powerful. That's, I just want to hit the floor every time I hear it. It's so good. But in this, we see, it's kind of a cool thing. We see that there's a connection back to the first redeemer. Moses is the first redeemer. And Jesus is, Messiah is, the final Redeemer. And, and we get a connection also to God, and it's almost like it's, a, I mean, this is pretty clearly an equating or a oneness even with God. So that, <laughs> it's awesome. And Samuel, in this podcast, we have tried to emphasize Jesus's humanity. Have we not? Most definitely. Yeah, and why? Because it is so integral to understanding the story, how everything even works. But we get to places like this, and we also rejoice in his preexistence and his divinity, all of it. And verses like this, and they can't be overlooked. We've never ever wanted to in any way diminish the God part of Jesus, the, the divine part of Jesus, we just, you know, we just don't want people diminishing the human part either. So this, this is the best. <laughs> anyway, Jesus's opponents, you know what they hear? Blasphemy! <laughs> That's it. All they want to do is carry out the death sentence immediately. And which is funny about that. What have we said, Samuel? What if the Jews just went and carried out a death sentence all on their own, ignoring the Romans. Uh, the Romans wouldn't like that. Uh, yeah, they probably would have ended up dead themselves. So think how mad these guys were at this moment. They were, <laughs> they were ready to kill him right then and there. It's like, if you kill me, then you'll die. It's worth it. You know, they just, they were ready to go. So they're grabbing stones and Jesus is slipping away. Now, again, we, we kind of have to ask that question. So is Jesus, is he really just being stealthy? He's able to just slip away, whatever? Or is there something, you know, supernatural going on that's aiding his ability to slip away? And we don't know. We can't be sure. And I mean, you know, given the choice, I would love to lean toward something supernatural. But in this case, we just have to be fair. We're in the temple. And guess what? There aren't stones just laying around in the temple. That just wouldn't have been the way that they did things. They, they want it to be clean and nice and good. So there wouldn't just be stones laying around. And 
Additionally, they wouldn't have wanted to just like stone him right there within the temple area. That They would think that was bad too. They're going to want to drag him outside. So all in all, there's probably a way more natural opportunity for him to slip away than we maybe would even at first imagine because just because of the circumstance, they're in the temple and a lot had to happen to get him outside before they could have carried it out anyway. Uh, but whatever, whatever it's worth, somehow he slips away. Oh, oh man, this is so powerful. Like I just, us just reading this text. I I mean, I feel floored hearing Jesus's response and just his supreme, I, I don't even know, just wisdom and interacting with these people. So I can only imagine how weighty this moment must have been for the people who are actually there like in the flesh experiencing it. And it just, it makes me think about at the end of the biblical story when God like conquers his enemies through like using Messiah as the leader like on you know earth in the kingdom and from there to the the end of the age and the world to come and everything what does Messiah do to conquer his enemies he speaks like it's it it says that his mouth is like a sword mm. and that almost gives the essence that all Messiah has to do is speak a word and his enemies will will fall like they'll be yeah. vanquished and so it just it gives me a little glimpse of that even within his limited fleshly self here on earth that he was giving people glimpses of that just in his ability to speak to people which is just so amazing i mean i know that there's also like the way that you know you and i are experiencing reading this and people who are listening to it there's a spiritual essence to it because the spirit is like connected and tied to this word to help us learn and grow and everything but it's just i don't know it's just like the coal of a comb where like how much more great will it be um, yeah (laughs) down the road oh yeah um that would be such a a good moment to end this (laughs) podcast on but I'm actually That's just not our style. It's it really <laughs> is not. Um I so do you I'm gonna let you pick Paul. Do you wanna wrestle first and then end on the happy feely, or do you want the happy feely first and then end on wrestling? Let's wrestle first. Okay. So let's go back a minute and talk about this aspect that the text is showing about Jesus' pre existence and divinity with Jesus and Abraham meeting one another. So I'm thinking back to John chapter 1 with his premise about the wisdom, the word, the audience would have known that. And then like in verse 9, verse 10, like the big mic drop moment was him saying, you know, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Whenever I read that, John makes it seem like that that was a, a new thing, a new manner in which the wisdom or the word of God appeared to yeah. uh, interact with the world. And so it's hard for me to imagine Abraham seeing a fleshly Jesus whenever he hadn't taken on flesh and dwelt among us yet. So 
again, these are all speculative, but is it like God gave Abram a vision of what Messiah would look like through the bodily form of Jesus, or did Abraham experience and see and interact with the essence of Messiah yes. in the Word and on like a transcendent level, but not a physical level? Like, yes, like let's let's parse that out a little bit because I I don't want people to walk away from this thinking that Jesus like you know sat down in a chair and had a cup of coffee with you know Jewish Jesus. Right, right. Yeah, um yeah, th- and that's good. That is a bad picture. If if you're reading your Old Testament and you're thinking, "Oh, look, that was Jesus right there." No, it wasn't. Just stop it. That's a bad image to have in your head. Now, having said that, when you look back and you see things like the angel of the Lord or the word of the Lord, different things like that, and you know that whatever this thing is, in the Old Testament that's interacting, you know that it fits into that idea, that concept, that category of the Word or the wisdom, uh, the Shekinah, that kind of stuff. And and it represents the, the essence of God, it, at least here in creation. And so in that sense, are they seeing the same thing as Jesus? Well, yeah, but that's different than, you know, in your imagination, thinking that Jesus is like walking around with the patriarchs or something. That's a bad image. So I would say, and you said it in your question, yeah, it's he, Abraham, I I would say that what the scriptures seem to be telling us that Abraham is seeing and experiencing that agent of God, that essence of God, that whatever it is, and in its inmost parts, or I don't know how else we could say that, that is the same thing as what he would they would see in Jesus. So if somehow uh, in the story, Abraham got raised from the dead and he started walking around in first century Israel, when he saw Jesus, he wouldn't have recognized his face, his hair, his, you know, whatever, any of that. And yet he would have recognized him immediately because he was the same thing that he saw back in his day. Is that mm. an okay way to say that? Yeah, I really like that image that you just painted there at the end. That's cool. Okay. It's like there I've you met go. you before, like but but not in the way that normal people know that or normal people say that they've met someone in the past. Like it's yeah. it's much deeper in metaphysical kind of way. So Paul wins the arm wrestling. <laughs> Nice. I hope that it helped me. I hope it helped the listeners as well. Um, okay, time for the feel-good part so we can wrap this up. So, All right. Oh, man, so good. So the I am statement and Jesus inserting it here amongst this larger argument about their relationship with Abraham, there is a direct correlation between it, like based on my studies of the Jewish scriptures and the story and the narrative of God choosing to use that statement, I am, for Moses to tell the Israelites because it would have given the people a direct reference to Abraham. So what I mean by that is 
most of Abraham's story, like the high points that showcase who his character was and his traits, come from the statement, I am. In Hebrew, that is Hanuni, and it, it gives off, like, whenever God first came to him, you know, Abraham said, here I am. Whenever, like, the covenant was made between um, the, the, the pre-covenantal, the pre-Torah covenant, um, Abraham responded by saying, I am. And then whenever um, he was asked to kill his own son, he said, I am. Here I am. And and then later, um, whenever Isaac is like struggling to figure out what is going on with this journey to the mountain and he's consoling his father, like, what's happening? Like, he responds, like, here I am, son. And so what what I'm trying to iterate here is that Hanuni gives this impression of like, I'm not going anywhere like you have summoned me for this purpose or this this route that you're taking me and I am dedicated to it. Like, I, no matter what happens, this is what is going to be my identity from now on. Um, and so the, the Israelite people, I mean, you can see in, in their interactions here how much they, they held Abraham in such high regard. So... Um, they carry that story through generations and then you know they they get taken into captivity and slavery in Egypt and they're kind of separated from that story that they had been telling through their generations their descendants and and to some degree they probably lost some aspects of it and then when Moses came and told the people like I am sent you, that would have sparked with the people like, oh my gosh, like the God of Abraham is who has come to rescue us. Like that is who Moses has interacted with. And so for Jesus to say that there, like, I mean, of course it was blowing their minds and anger and everything, but at the same time, like, with that deep connection to the story of Abraham and his characteristics for Jesus to insert that there, like there's no way that they could have also not been convicted. Like, Oh my gosh, is this, is this not happening again? Yeah. <laughs> like whenever I heard that, that message, that story, that lesson for the first time, like, Oh, I just was, was dead. And it's not going to be the last time that we bring it up. Like Jesus is going to do it again. So in, or at least in my interpretation. So I don't know if I did that justice, Paul, but like, oh, so good. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you went, went and did it, Samuel. That's good, good stuff. And, you know, it kind of gives people a little extra insight into how we start off every podcast. Yeah. Just saying and it should give people motivation to stick around at the end. I was just thinking that, like, I don't know if we even have analytics of being able to see when people click the, the shut off button for our episodes, but darn it, I believe sometimes some of our best nuggets come at the very end of <laughs> our podcast. <laughs> so well, stick around to the end, folks. <laughs> that's right. They've got to stick around at least long enough to hear you say, Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. 
You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.